Matthew chapter 21. Um, it's Palm Sunday, so it's a rule that you have to preach on the passages that deal with this Sunday. Um, you know, it's it's. And so we're gonna we're gonna be looking at Matthew chapter 21, but we're going to we're gonna use that hopefully to fuel something for you maybe this week that you might you might get into uh, reading the the rest of this this book setting up for Resurrection Sunday. In Matthew chapter 21, we we read these words. Now, when they drew to near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the mountain of olives, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is what we read at the beginning, Zechariah 9, saying to say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, although I doubt it made any sense to them whatsoever. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them, put on them their cloaks, and they, he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others put branches, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. They were stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, this crowd, we, we talk about this every year. We get to Palm Sunday and we talk about the crowd cheering for Jesus. And, and in years past, we've, we've had palms and we've had the kids raise them and shake them and sing and done all kinds of stuff. But this, this year, I want you to think about this, this aspect of this moment. Because we talk all about the celebration, but we, we have to remember that this celebration, as Ray said, happens a week before this same crowd is, impl- is duplicit in Jesus' crucifixion. The crowd of Jerusalem that, that proclaims him and says, Hosanna, Hosanna, is also present during the Passover and everything that happens, his trial, and there's all kinds of things that go on. And I want to challenge you right from the get-go to think about this. Who did the crowd think they were welcoming to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday? Who did they think Jesus was? Because we, we have a tendency to kind of read with hindsight. We read backwards and we go, oh, well, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that Jesus was coming to, to die for them. They absolutely did not know that. In Matthew, Jesus, three times Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And they completely miss it every single time. John, there's all these conversations Jesus has with his disciples in John where he talks about this. And he will say something so unbelievably clear it's hard to miss. And they will completely and utterly miss the point. And we get on the disciples' case, but honestly... We have the advantage of looking back with hindsight. When they were in it, what did they think was coming? The crowd thought they were welcoming a king. They thought they were welcoming a prophet. 
They thought they were welcoming someone who was going to overthrow the Romans. They thought they were welcoming, oh, this is going to be great. Everybody's going to get what they deserve. And of course, what we deserve is the perfect king of our minds. What we deserve is the king we want. It's no mistake, and for some reason we tend to miss this when we read this, that in Matthew, Jesus comes and everybody celebrates him and everything goes on. Everybody's like, yay, Jesus, he's so cool. Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus goes from that procession, gets off the donkey that, the, that has ridden over all the cloths and the palms. He gets off the donkey, walks to the temple and overthrows tables and drives the money changers out of the temple courtyard. He goes right from them celebrating Hosanna, King of Kings, to causing problems. Jesus is troublemaker number one in Jerusalem from the moment he gets off that donkey until the moment that they crucify him. Don't ever forget that Jesus has come into Jerusalem not so everybody could get the, the Messiah that they want, but to disrupt their world. All right, to bring the, the shaking, the earthquake, the, the destruction of what they thought they wanted so that they would be ready for a savior. The next thing Jesus does, so he, he cleans the temple. He cleanses the temple, verses 12 to 17. And everybody's kind of got questions about what's going on there. And then in verse 19, verse 18, there's this bizarre moment where Jesus walks up to a fig tree thinking he's going to get figs. Now, I do not get the attraction of figs, but they're, they're a popular food with these people. Um, and they like figs, and, and, and those of you that like Fig Newtons, I, I don't know if we can be friends, but, um, you know, I, there's something about figs I don't like. The only time I've ever encountered figs that I really liked them, they were a sauce on pork chops, um, and I couldn't taste the figs. But uh, so he goes to this fig tree, and he's going to get a fig, and, and there's no figs. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and the fig tree dies. Now, he just walked in Jerusalem. Everybody's excited. Yay, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. He goes to the temple. He overthrows the money changers. He upsets the priesthood. He upsets the economy of Jerusalem, which that's where so much of their income comes from. Then he goes to a tree, and he curses a tree. And if I'm Jesus' disciples, um, I'm asking exactly the question they ask in verse 20, which is, how did the fig tree wither at once? They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is going on here? That's really what they're saying. We do not get what is happening here. And it's, I think, a hint of what's going on. The celebration that they brought to Jesus, right? As he comes into Jerusalem, everybody's shouting, Hosanna, King of David. But it's just leaves and no fruit. It's just like that fig tree that he comes to. There's, there's, there's no substance to what they're saying. It's all about what they're going to get. It's all about, yay, King, Jesus, wahoo, God, we're going to give praise to God because the one that we want to show up has shown up. Now, don't get me wrong. There were a lot of reasons for people to be cheering about Jesus when he walks into Jerusalem. For one thing, he is accompanied by two blind men that he has healed and a dead guy he raised from the dead. So there are a lot of people going, this is the candidate we want. There are a lot of people looking at Jesus going, I don't see how there's any questions. Healing the blind, raising the dead, let's go with Jesus. But they, they don't understand the depth of what Jesus is about to do. 
They're still looking at him as what they can get from him. And, and so much of the reaction is fig trees with lots of leaves but no fruit. Because as we read, if you take the time this week and you keep reading through the next few chapters, read 22, 23, 24, 25, and you will see that Jesus has come into Jerusalem to disrupt the status quo of everything that they want to have happen. He blows up the temple and religion as usual in 21. He blows up the authority structure that they think they've established. They've got a whole plan for who is in charge of what. They ask Jesus what authority he has to do the things that he's doing. Um, they're, they're trying to kind of get him, and he blows that up. He has this great moment where they ask him where his authority comes from. And then he says to them, well, I'll answer that question if you answer my question. Where did John the Baptist's baptism come from, earth or heaven? And everybody goes, well, no matter how we answer that question, we lose. So they choose not to answer the question. And they decide Jesus is too dangerous to let him stick around. They've got to get rid of him. Then in chapter, the end of chapter 22 and through chapter 23, he disrupts their way of interpreting scripture. He disrupts their way of thinking. They ask him all kinds of questions like, you know, a man is married to a woman and the man dies and then his brother marries her and he dies. And then we go through seven brothers. Which one is she married to in the kingdom? And this is one of those moments where I just think Jesus raised the eyebrow. And he just went, really? This is what you think we're going to talk about right now. This is, this is what you're asking. This is the question you're asking. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get Jesus into a theological debate. They're trying to get him, they're trying to figure out where does he fit? Does he fit uh, in the school of Shammai? Does he fit in the school of Hillel? Where is he going to go? Is he, is he going to work with us or not? And Jesus just keeps blowing up everything they say and do. Jesus just causes disruption after disruption. And then um, in chapter 24, we get this great moment um, as he's going. Uh, Jesus leaves the temple. All right? He's lamented over, the, over Jerusalem. So, so at the end of chapter 23, Jesus stands up and he says he starts lamenting over Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, this is Passover week in, in Herod's temple. There are over a million pilgrims have come from all over the Roman and Persian world to be at Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and the court of the Gentiles is just filled with people watching. And the Jews have all come. This is, this is the highest, the highest of, the, of the processions, the regalim. This is, this is the moment when everybody's supposed to be there. And Jesus stands up in the courtyard and starts weeping over this. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And everybody goes, hold up. Jesus leaves the temple. Oh, by the way, at the end of chapter 23, he let me just read this, because this is just a great moment of Jesus using irony. Remember what they proclaimed when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is verse 23, 37. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing... See, your house is left to you desolate. This place is crowded when he says this. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, they didn't get it. They didn't know what they were saying. Jesus says, next time I show up, you're going to know. 
Next time, you're going to understand what it means, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. If ever there was an example of people totally missing the point, Jesus, don't you admire these stones? Jesus is like, really? That's where you're going to go with this? I just pronounced a woe over Jerusalem. I just said this house is desolate. Like, yeah, but it's got big rocks. <laughs> Look at these big rocks. And when we went to Jerusalem recently, in the last 10 or 15 years or so, they, they've uncovered, there's this thing called the archaeological govern, uh, garden outside of the, the walls of Herod's temple. And there's actually a place where in AD 70, the Roman soldiers tore down the wall and they threw some of the rocks, just pushed them over the edge. And there's actually one of the rocks that's actually hit the Roman pavement. And it's up at an angle. It's enormous. It's huge. And Herod's temple was one of... If, if the seven wonders of the world had been written while Herod's temple was standing, they would, have, they would have included it. It was the largest open gathering space in the world. Bigger than anything that Rome had. Bigger than anything that came until they built um, the, the, the big piazza around St. Peter's in Rome for you know when the, the Pope comes out and everybody cheers in Italian. Um, that, that, that space is the only thing that's ever been built that's bigger than Herod's temple platform. It was enormous. It was an engineering marvel, marvel. And they went, well, look at this. And he goes, Jesus answered them. He says, you see all this? Do you, do, not, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The people of Israel, the disciples even, were thinking that, that wow, the temple is done. It's finished. This is what the prophet Ezekiel talked about, that the temple was going to be rebuilt. This is the kingdom. And Jesus just walked in. And they're like, Jesus, you notice these stones. And Jesus goes, these things are going to go. They're going over the edge. And then he starts talking about the end of the age. He starts talking about, listen, you don't even know what's coming. He says there's going to be, uh, Daniel prophesied something that rhymes so great in English, the abomination of desolation. Um, some translations turn it to the abomination that makes desolate. I'm like, no, no, this is awesome. Abomination that makes desolation. That should be the name of a 90s rock band album. <laughs> right? This is just awesome. All right? So the abomination of desolation, he says they're going to come in, they're going to destroy the temple, they're going to desecrate it. You don't know what's coming. He starts to take everything that they think they know about the end of the world and he flips it up on its end. He disrupts everything about their thinking. You would think, you would think that in the run-up to his crucifixion, to the run-up of his offering of his body and his blood for all of mankind, you would think that Jesus would have wanted to smooth the path a little bit. Certainly, the earthly leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes and everybody that were gathered, what they really wanted Jesus to do was just... just you know, let's work together. Let's, let's bring in the kingdom together. We've done all this prep work. You know, I mean, people, look at this. million people gathered. Isn't this fantastic? The temple and the high priest and all the hoopla. And do you think you could just give us a little something so we could say we work together? And Jesus just goes, poof, 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 poof. He just blows up everything that they've been trying to build. He opposes everything. Jesus is the ultimate dissident. 
when he is confronted with people who think they can bring the kingdom in on their own power and just invite Jesus along. They're like, Jesus, we built all this thing. Isn't it great? What do you think? Let's find out what theological school you are so we can surround you with the right people. Let's get to PR people. Can we have hair and makeup in? The hair is not working. Maybe a halo. It would be fantastic. We really want, you know, Jesus, just stand like this. This is great. Um, you know, we, we, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we, we want, uh, we want, and if you could just hold this staff, that would be fantastic. They're trying to get Jesus in on their agenda. And Jesus is disrupting everything. He's blowing up everything. Now, he knows that they're, the reality of who he is, they are not willing to accept it. They are not willing to accept what he's about to do. What did everyone expect Jesus to do? We read that entrance and all the singing and, and we think that that was, that was the culmination of Jesus' journey there, but it wasn't. That wasn't why he was coming. Now he's fulfilling a prophecy. There's no doubt about that. There's a prophecy. Zechariah, he's coming. They're declaring from Psalm 118. They're, they're, they're engaged with Jesus, but they have no idea what's about to happen. And the religious leaders, as they're looking at it, What they're seeing and what the people were seeing before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they were celebrating who they thought Jesus was. And they were hoping just a little bit of that would be true in Jesus. At one point, and again, take the time to read this, it seems almost as if they're trying to nudge Jesus to give them the answer they want. So they can say Jesus agrees with us. So where are we going with all this? What's the big idea out of coming out of Palm Sunday? Jesus being disruptive. Pharisees, Sadducees trying to get Jesus, trying to figure him out. I have what I think is good news. And it is this. Jesus is not interested in meeting you halfway. Jesus is not interested in giving you what you think you need. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King of all kings. He's the sovereign of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He knows what you want. And He knows where it comes from. He knows the reality of who we are as people. And if all Jesus was going to do was give us what we thought we wanted, we would make an even worse disaster than we already have. I say, well, you know, I I, I want... um, There's there's an old story, and this may may resonate with you. There's an old story about uh, door-to-door evangelism. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this idea. Um, Door-to-door was a thing that I think we got from vacuum salesmen. I'm not entirely sure. Um, the Kirby guys were doing it. We went, we could sell Jesus that way. And what it was, was you were, you know, and I was required to do this when I was in college, um, that you had to go to people's doors and knock on their door and, and you had a, you know, a, a tract, a piece of paper that told them about Jesus. Usually it was uh, spiritual laws or Romans Road. There's any number of these little patterns. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. 
But you knock on the door and you would say to somebody, have you heard about Jesus and eternal life? Now, first of all, there's this great cartoon um, where there's, a, there's somebody standing at the door. It's a, com- it's a little comic and it says, um, have you found Jesus? And the person standing at the door facing the evangelist and then there's a, there's a curtain next to a window and there's just a pair of sandaled feet behind the curtain, which I think is hilarious. Um, you, you'll think about that for a little bit. But, um, but they would knock on the door. They would knock on the door. If you heard of Jesus, you know, uh, would, would you like to know how you could have eternal life? And the old story is evangelist knocks on the door and this woman opens the door and she's got one baby on her shoulder and she's got another one running around like crazy. Um, and, uh, and he says, would you, would you like to hear how you could have eternal life? She goes, is it going to be as bad as this one? You know, and and so often when we talk about Jesus, we 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 talk about let's take, you know, let's take, um, you know, what 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 can we what can we sell the product of faith about? And we can tell people, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you know, you're gonna get you're gonna get money and health and and wealth, and that's not gonna work. Doesn't work for me. Let me know if it works for you. And you believe for Jesus, you believe in Jesus, man, and, and everything is going to be smooth sailing for the rest of your life. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. You believe in Jesus, man, and, and instantly you're going you're gonna to be able to be on this journey that you're going to work to a point where you're going to stop sinning. You'll never have to worry about it again. We were at a, a revival meeting when I was a kid. Today, by the way, is Palm Sunday. He doesn't listen. Um, so he won't know about this, about me telling this. But today is Palm Sunday. My dad was saved on Palm Sunday, 1971. That means it's 50 years that my dad's been a believer, which is extraordinary to me. Um, it's amazing to me um, that Jesus has put up with him that long. <laughs> but, you know, we, we say, well, you know, you become a believer. We used to, and so my, as a kid, we used to go to some of these real extreme, like, holiness revival meetings. Um, because my dad and his best friend, they just like to go and see people shout. And we've talked about this over the past. People throwing handkerchiefs in the air, something that's never happened in New England. Um, you know, people, I mean, people speaking in tongues. We went to one where there's this little old lady. She was about 85 years old or so. Of course, I was like 10, so she probably was like in her 60s. But she looked like she was 85 to me. And um, the preacher would be preaching, and he was going. You know, he was, you know, he was rolling. He was old stump sucker. And and um, and he was and she would she he'd be preaching suddenly she'd jump up from the front front she'd go amen and she'd take off around the sanctuary and then play a chorus of amazing grace on the on the piano and then sit down and then he'd keep preaching and she'd go amen she'd stand up and she'd run around and we had no idea what was going on it was wild and it was almost as good as the lady who sat in the back of my dad's church who used to sleep through the sermons until he would say one of her trigger words. And then when she'd stand up, she'd go, praise the Lord. And then she'd sit back down. <laughs> I'm not making it up. It happened all the time. Um, but we were, at, we were at this one service where people were standing up and ta- sharing testimonies of their sanctification. They would stand up and this little lady, she goes, I was saved in 1968. I was sanctified in 1973. And I haven't sinned since. My mother goes, marry him, marry her. You know, my <laughs> you know I mean, it's just, it, and, and there was like a group of people that's, I'm just going to tell you right now, your faith in Christ is not going to make your sin nature miraculously go away. 
You're going to stop sinning. Now, now today, the holiness movement has changed. There's, a, there's whole groups of people in the holiness movement who now believe that it's not that you stop sinning. It's that you can no longer sin, so anything that you do must be righteous. And that's even worse. That's even more dangerous. But there's all kinds of attitudes about what will you get when you come to Jesus. And people sell Jesus to you as something that you're going to get. You're going to get a better life or you're going to get a ticket out of hell or you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be able to go to heaven and play a harp, also have a halo, hair and makeup. You, you, you don't know what's going to go. White bathrobe, hopefully not like a hospital one, closes in the back. We, we, and everybody's trying to sell you on Jesus. Jesus doesn't meet us halfway. He doesn't give us some of what we want so he can get what he wants. He's either Savior and Lord or he isn't. And if he's Savior and Lord, then we need to trust him with everything. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, even the people who met Jesus on the road, they were hoping that Jesus was going to just meet them a little halfway. Even in Jesus' trial. If you just say this, we can let you go. When he goes to, I mean, my favorite is when he's talking to Herod in Galilee. And Herod goes, I have heard of you. I've heard that you do miracles. Just do a miracle for me and I will set you free. That's actually how he talked. (laughs) If you know anything about the Herod family, you know that that's probably not a bad impersonation. They married each other's sisters and wives. And it was all kinds of craziness. And Jesus goes, I'm not doing anything for you. Herod's like, please. <laughs> you read it. it. This is actually how it goes. And when Jesus refuses, he sends him back to the high priest. He says, I can't do anything with him. You, you take care of him. The high priest is like, well, you said that you were the son of God. You said that you were this. Why don't you just tell us the truth? Why don't you do... You know, they're, they're trying to talk him into convincing them that everything he was saying was just rhetoric so they can just walk away. We can work together. And Jesus just responds, you know, listen, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. They're like, no, no, don't say that. Just anything else will work for us. And you get the sense of like, we really don't want to have to crucify you, Jesus. We're really, just work with us a little. And Jesus just is adamantly, he refuses to give an inch. Why? Because he's Jesus. Do you really want to trust a Savior Who's going to give in to you? Who's just waiting to find something we can compromise about so that you can follow Jesus? Now, this isn't a popular thing, but I'm just going to tell you right now the crucifixion of Jesus tells us one thing Jesus isn't going to give an inch on who he is and what he does. And you can try to kill him. And he'll just raise himself from the dead. Jesus is not ours. We are his. And he is sovereign. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're hoping that Jesus is going to meet you halfway on some issue in your life, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. It's been 2,000 years and he has never sent a bottle of white out to fix the Bible for you. He is Christ. And either He is Lord of our salvation and our lives, 
or we're waiting for him to compromise. So Christian, I would just encourage you. You say, I just need Jesus to do such and such. I, 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 if, if, or maybe you're, you're kind of on the edge trying to decide whether you want to be a follower of Christ or not. You're like, if Jesus could just do this one thing for me. Jesus isn't going to budge. Jesus came, He walked among us, He lived among us, He was tempted uh, like as we were tempted. He faced every temptation we did. He was sinless. He came to Jerusalem. He offered Himself on the cross. He He was killed. He was buried. And three days later, He was raised from the dead. And Jesus continues to be Jesus through 2,000 years of Christians trying to get Him to be something else. He continues to be who He is and He calls us to love Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and to devote ourselves to Him. And it's not going to change for you. So follow Him. You say, this is not a very good job of selling us Jesus. (laughs) If you haven't noticed, that's not what I want to do. I'm not trying to give you a Jesus that's easy to accept. Because the Jesus of the Bible calls us into a life challenge and growth and discipline and 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 struggle and and suffering when we unite with him when we identify with him so what do we get out of it what do we get out of it all i can tell you is i wouldn't trade my relationship with the creator and the Savior, and the sustainer of all things for anything. To know Christ and Him crucified changes everything about your world. And yet you still suffer. And yet you still struggle. And yet you fumble and you fall. And sometimes we, we, we all do it. But I wouldn't trade the relationship I have with Christ for anything I might have asked Him to compromise a little bit with me about. Because the more we know Him, the more we realize He is who He said He is, He will do what He said He will do, and He will not compromise. And honestly, this far down the road of my faith, I'm glad I follow a Christ and a, and a Savior who will not compromise because He is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you join me in a word of prayer?